Welcome to the LPP, the Legal Professional Privilege Podcast, quite a mouthful, uh, by Herbert Smith Freehills. We're going to look today at the tricky concept of legal professional privilege and explore some practical scenarios. I'm Liz McNay. I'm the Office Managing Partner for Herbert Smith Freehills in Perth, and I'm a commercial litigator with a particular focus on corporate regulatory matters, corporate crime and investigations, and international arbitration. I'm Cameron Hanson, a partner based in Sydney, and I specialise in commercial dispute resolution with a particular focus on regulatory investigations and class actions. And I'm Andrew Eastwood, a partner in HSF's disputes practice in Sydney, with a particular focus on disputes and regulatory issues in the financial services sector. And I have a keen interest in all things related to privilege, so it's great to be uh, back on this podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Um, So in this episode, we're going to share our practical experiences advising clients on some of the thorny privilege issues. We all love a war story, so Cameron, Andrew and I will be sharing three war stories with you today. Without giving away too much, the war stories relate to what can happen when you try to cloak documents in privilege by involving internal legal, trying to claim privilege over an investigation report and maintaining or in this war story potentially risking common interest privilege. All of these stories actually happened on cases we were involved in but in order to protect client confidentiality we have altered some of the facts of each scenario. But before we launch into the war stories, just to get you in the zone, here's a quick recap on the basics of legal professional privilege. In short, a communication or document is only protected by legal professional privilege if it is confidential between a lawyer and a client and brought into existence for the sole or dominant purpose of providing or obtaining legal advice or for use in actual or anticipated litigation. Episodes one to five of this podcast covered the basics of privilege, so feel free to listen back to those if you'd like some more detail. But now to the war stories. Cameron, we sometimes hear clients talking about cloaking documents in privilege. What are some of the risks with that? Thanks, Liz. Uh, I mean, big picture, there are really two risks that arise here. The first of them is that references to cloaking documents can themselves be unhelpful. Those references can increase regulatory suspicion and scrutiny. And the second is that When people think that their documents are cloaked in privilege, they can be incautious in what they write because they assume that what they're writing will never see the light of day. And and I think here it's really the mindset that's a problem. People say, here's an issue. We want to make sure that all documents about this issue are kept confidential. But that's not really what privilege is about. Privilege is about legal advice being kept confidential. It's not about all documents on a particular topic being confidential. And so in one example, um, I came across the client had identified an issue. Um, They needed to pull a team together to investigate the issue. And it was an issue that was likely to result in regulatory scrutiny. And so early on, a non-lawyer in the team wrote an email saying, we need to put the cloak of privilege around all of the documents that we're going to create and then set out a a communications protocol, the gist of which was, you know, make sure that you copy an internal lawyer on all the documents you're sending. 
Later on, sure enough, the client did have to produce documents to a regulator, and that included the comms protocol email, which itself was not privileged. It was from a non-lawyer to a group of non-lawyers. It wasn't providing legal advice. It wasn't for the purpose of providing legal advice. And so during the course of the investigation, the regulator singled out that email and said this really showed a mindset on the part of the client of trying to hide things from the regulator. And that really made the engagement with the regulator much more difficult because it created a, an air of mistrust. And I think that, that word of cloaking in particular was seen to, in, in a very pejorative light. Um, the second issue was that that comms protocol really made the members of the team think that, well, so long as I copy an internal lawyer or I head my documents privileged and confidential, those things will never see the light of day. And that really did result in people saying things in writing they wouldn't ordinarily say. And they were engaging in ill-considered speculation about things rather than just dealing with the facts as they knew them. And so what that meant was, again, down the track in dealing with the regulator, um, not only were all those communications disclosed, but often when documents were headed privileged and confidential, it really highlighted these are the things that people really want to hide. And there was a particular example of two relatively senior business people sending emails to each other headed privileged and confidential, and it provided a roadmap to the regulator. These are the emails you really want to read. And it was clear that the authors had thought, as long as I've put privileged and confidential at the top, none of this will ever see the light of day. So in my experience, one of the worst things that happened in business was non-lawyers learning about legal professional privilege. And really the best advice you can give to the business is assume everything you write will one day be read by a regulator. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Cameron. I mean, do you think given those risks, it's ever worth trying to establish protocols to ensure documents are privileged? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And the answer is yes. I mean, sometimes there is a genuine need when obtaining and providing legal advice to get input from around the business to be able to give that advice. You may need information from a number of parts of the business to provide the relevant facts that will then inform the advice that's to be provided. And having a protocol in place really helps you ensure that it's clear which documents were created for that purpose rather than some other purpose. So privileged protocols definitely have a place. But what's important is that the involvement of legal has to be meaningful. It has to be that, in fact, the documents are created for the purpose of giving legal advice. You can't just make internal legal a post box and then assume that everything will be privileged. You can't just send an email to legal and copy the real intended recipients and say, well, that's privileged because I sent it to legal. It has to actually be for the dominant purpose of seeking or giving legal advice. And again, in that same scenario, one thing that happened was internal legal were asked to engage a consultant to prepare a report on the risks that arose from the situation. And the reason internal legal were asked to do it is it was thought, well, that'll make sure that that report is privileged. And of course, that report was a real roadmap of everything that was potentially wrong here. Um, but the problem is asking a consulting firm to prepare such a report through internal legal is not enough to make it privileged. So when documents had to be produced to the regulator and the client said, well, here's this report, but it's privileged, 
uh, we then said, okay, can you show me the legal advice that was prepared on the basis of this report? And of course, there was then silence. And the answer is, well, there, there was no legal advice. We just got internal legal to commission this report. And so the answer then is, well, it's, it's not privileged. It was not obtained for the purpose of legal advice. And the fact that an internal lawyer commissioned it is not enough to make it so. Um, but Andrew, this is a particularly complex area, and I think you've got a, a good example of the difficulty of privilege claims over internal investigation reports. Yeah, that's right, Cameron. So, I mean, internal investigations are, of course, one of the trickiest areas in relation to, to privilege, and hence we've covered it in some detail in earlier episodes of this podcast. My story uh, arose in the context of a major incident where there was loss of life and injury to persons and damage to property. And in the context of investigating this incident, the police, after quite some time, started to explore sort of a number of potential causes of the incident, one of which was whether the assets of my client might have been a cause of it. And in that context, the litigation subcommittee of the board of my client asked that a technical analysis be conducted by an internal expert as to how the company's assets may have caused this major incident. It was like a bit of a hypothetical kind of exercise. And this was clearly recorded at the time to be for the sole purpose of assisting an external law firm to provide legal advice to the company, including in relation to the ongoing police investigation and also just general litigation risk. Subsequently, and some years down the track, a class action was commenced by those who suffered loss and damage as a result of the incident, and that was brought against my client and others. And in the course of that litigation, there were a number of privilege challenges brought, and one of them related to this technical analysis that had been conducted by the internal expert. The company claimed privilege over that, that analysis, as you might expect, and, put, and we put on evidence from, among others, the internal lawyer who was present at the relevant litigation subcommittee meeting as to the purpose of the analysis saying that the sole purpose was a, a privileged one. Now, ultimately, the court held that it wasn't privileged on the basis that dominant purpose wasn't established. And there are sort of two reasonably detailed judgments on this point, uh, but I'd say that the essence of the court's reasoning was to emphasize that the test for privilege is, um, is objective, not subjective, and then say that Objectively, there were a number of reasons why the company would want such a technical analysis prepared, including in light of its safety obligations under relevant legislation. And it pointed to the fact that the company had not discovered an unprivileged analysis in relation to whether its assets could have caused the incident. So, for instance, the court stated in one of the judgments that where an accident occurs resulting in injury or death and a corporation obtains a report on the accident, there will often be two or more purposes to that report. Often it will be claimed that the report is privileged in that it was purportedly produced to obtain legal advice about the corporation's legal position in relation to the accident. In those circumstances, where corporations have duties of care and responsibility, 
and its officers have statutory duties to exercise care and skill, it's almost invariably the case that the corporation also requires the report to ascertain what happened and to ensure that steps are taken to avoid it happening again. The information may also be needed to inform a regulator, insurers, the coroner, the police, to comply with health and safety rules and a myriad of other operational requirements of the company. So you can really see from that kind of quote, sort of the challenges that can exist uh, in, in trying to claim privilege over the kind of these kind of reports. I mean, one other thing that the court did in its judgments was, was place some reliance on the fact that direct evidence was not led from the chair of the litigation subcommittee, even though there was the evidence as to what the chair had said at that relevant meeting. So Andrew, what are some of the key lessons our listeners should take from that experience? Yeah, well, it was a pretty scarring experience, Cameron, and so I took quite a lot of lessons from it. I, I think some of the key ones are, firstly, just emphasising the objective nature of the test, which I think does place some limits on how far you can get through what is effectively subjective evidence uh, around purpose. I, I think another point um, is this challenging one about who you lead evidence from when seeking to establish a privilege claim. Here, there was a there was a criticism of sorts that we led evidence from an internal lawyer and not from the the chair of the subcommittee. Of course, there, there are usually forensic um, sort of issues that you need to consider in making those decisions. And often at these interlocutory stages, when you're having these fights, you don't really want to be putting a, a senior business person uh, in the box and, and subject them to cross-examination. So it can be challenging to know how to approach that. I think a third point is just what we've touched on in this podcast a number of times, the real challenges with claiming privilege in the context of internal investigations. And, and there are some scenarios where you should consider from the outset whether to have dual work streams such that you have at the end one report which you accept is open and not privileged and you seek to have a second report which is which is privileged um, given the kind of comments made by the court in this kind of war story perhaps that kind of approach would give you more chance of a privileged claim getting up um, and then I mean I think Fourthly, and this really goes to a point you made as well, Cameron, in, in your war story, whilst privilege is important, so is attention to drafting documents carefully and accurately. And, and here we were fortunate in that the technical analysis, which we ultimately had to hand over to the other side, actually was drafted carefully and, and, and appropriately, and it made it very clear that this was not an analysis of saying this is what happened. It was an analysis clearly on a hypothetical basis, uh, raising a bunch of possibilities and making clear it was subject to various assumptions and unknowns. So it wasn't in a sense of that damaging to us in the context of the, the litigation as a whole. So that's my war story. I, I guess, Liz, I understand your one relates to the um, the often misunderstood topic of common interest privilege. 
That's right, Andrew, and you're right to say it's often misunderstood. And that's probably not helped by the fact that common interest privilege is actually a bit of a misnomer. Common interest privilege isn't actually a privilege at all. Rather, it's a limited exception to the well-established principle that disclosure of a communication to a third party will waive any legal professional privilege in that communication. So as discussed, I think it was in our fourth podcast, common interest privilege means that if two or more parties have a mutual interest in the subject matter of the privileged communication, then confidential disclosure between them will not amount to a waiver of privilege. The critical issue is really whether there is a sufficient commonality of interests. The parties must truly have the same interests in respect of the subject matter of the legal advice, which is a question of fact. So, Liz, does that mean that common interest privilege won't apply if the parties have potentially divergent interests? Because I expect that test would be difficult to apply in practice. Absolutely, Cameron. It really can be. Faced with a claim, it's not always possible to know for sure whether two parties' interests may diverge. The parties won't lack a common interest merely because there's some remote or entirely contingent possibility that their interests may diverge. There has to be a genuine prospect that, based on the known facts, the parties' interests may not be aligned. And it's tricky, though, because sometimes things happen, in fact, they always happen during the course of litigation, um, that can shift the position and it might make it clear that the party's interests are no longer aligned. And classically, this arises where previously unknown evidence emerges, but it's not always new evidence that can lead to a divergence of two parties' interests. Sometimes it, it can come about due to a change of strategy by one party. Yes, Liz, and I understand your war story involves a matter you acted on where a strategic decision by one party nearly resulted in a loss of common interest privilege. That's right, Cameron. I acted on a case um, where two joint venturers were being sued by a former contractor that had provided services to the joint venture. And the case arose out of a mine services contract that had gone awry, which so often happens here in the wild west of Western Australia. Um, I acted for the joint venture operator and the other joint venture party was separately represented. It became pretty obvious uh, early on that one of my client's employees was going to be a critical witness in the proceeding. It was also pretty apparent that there was a real risk that this employee could be sued in her personal capacity. So for this reason, we recommended that she engage her own lawyer. Having done so, it became necessary to communicate with her through her lawyer, and her lawyer also understandably decided pretty early on uh, that she would take an initial witness statement to find out precisely what had happened and, and what the position was. And her lawyer was very happy to share that privileged work product with me and my client, given we had a, a very obvious common interest privilege. But Liz, I I believe an issue arose when the other defendant asked to see the witness statement. 
That's that's right, Andrew. The employee had no relationship with the other defendant and so was understandably a little bit apprehensive about handing over her witness statement to them. Uh, in an effort to put pressure on the employee, though, the other defendant decided that a good strategy would be to say that unless she was prepared to hand over her witness statement, they would consider bringing third party proceedings against her, alleging that she was liable to personally contribute to any ultimate damages award. So this strategic decision had the effect of really fundamentally undermining any common interest privilege between our client's employee and the other defendant. I mean, after all, how could it possibly now be said that they had a mutual interest in the draft witness statement if the other defendant was actually saying that was it was considering suing the employee? Uh, given this was a, a very early draft witness statement, my client was also very uncomfortable about the employee waiving privilege over it. So our client ended up actually directing the employee not to disclose the draft witness statement, um, given doing so would have been contrary not only to her interests potentially, but also to my client's interests. The other defendant eventually walked back its threats to join the employee's defendant. But the damage was really done by this point. They, they didn't end up getting the witness statement and common interest privilege going forward was, was seriously jeopardised. And there you have it. We're at time. Um, there have been a few privilege war stories to demonstrate how complex and nuanced this area, area can be. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you found it useful. You can find more resources on our Legal Professional Privilege in Australia online hub at hsf.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send your LPP questions or feedback on this podcast to lppaustralia at hsf.com. Thanks very much for listening.